following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, thank you. Let's turn our attention um, to the most important thing, which is our great God. You know, the Bible, when you read the Bible, it begins in a garden and it ends in a paradise. It is really a story that goes from paradise to paradise. And you go from eternity past to eternity future. And in the middle, in the middle, there's this struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And and what's hard to imagine is that somewhere in between all of that is our story. The Bible drops us into the lives of Christians from all of human history. You have Abraham, you have Joseph, Moses, Hannah, Abigail, Nathan, Caleb, Bethany, and David, to name a few. We read about Peter and Paul in the early church, and what might take us a year to read the Bible is really a 100,000-foot flyover of God's work in redemptive history. And if you're not careful, if we're not careful when we read our Bibles, we're going to miss something that is incredibly profound that will help us in the here and now. And it's that God is never on our timetable. And he works in ways that are mysterious. And he accomplishes his plans no matter how stupid humanity is or how stupid his people are. For instance, Adolf Hitler did not stop God from accomplishing his plan of bringing all things under the feet of Jesus. Saddam Hussein did not stop God from taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. God's purposes weren't halted by the craziness of Jim Jones, for those of you who remember him, by unfaithful Christian leaders, and God's purposes were certainly not stopped by the Christian rock band Striper. Now, those of you who just laughed know what I'm about to say, and Millie Vanelli had no impact on God's plans whatsoever. And some of you young people are going, who in the world is Millie Vanelli? Right. Lip syncing at its finest. The turmoil in your nation right now will not hinder God from doing what God has planned and promised. But here's the question for you. Do you believe that? Or does your fear, anger, anxiety expose what you really believe. Well, what if I told you something else? What if I told you something a bit more personal? That nothing will stop God from doing what he planned in your life. The mistakes that you made as a younger person that you deeply regret have not stopped God from doing what he planned to do in you. 
Your unwise decisions have not hindered God from getting you on his schedule. As a matter of fact, I could go so far as to say biblically, God is actually using those to keep you on his schedule. Do you believe that God's purposes and promises are so important to God that he will accomplish them no matter what happens in this world or in your life? Is your God, in capital letters, that sovereign? Is he that big? Is he that overwhelmingly powerful? Is he that omniscient? Is he, is he that, that strong? Is he that mighty? Is he that wise? Is he, is he that strategic? Is that your God? Well, this morning we're going to see this very thing play out in the biblical text. And what we're going to see in Genesis 20, hopefully is this. This is the big idea this morning. This is in your notes. Should be on the outline that you received. Is this God's ways are not our ways. He will protect the prom, his promises and the institutions that he has set up. He thinks long term and he does things in his timing. Now we think we're thinking long term, but really we're 70 years and the Bible says our life is like a vapor. God thinks from eternity past to eternity future. And he does things in his own timing all throughout redemptive history and nothing will stop him. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's look at our first point, which is Abraham does it again. (laughs) I mean, this guy, man. I mean, we see this in verses 1 and 2 and verses 9 through 13. And now we're fresh off. The Sodom and Gomorrah judgment. We've just studied that last week. Abraham and Sarah now head south in the, they're actually in the land of promise. They arrived in a area called Gerar and they encounter a king named Abimelech. When Abimelech's men approach them, Abraham informs them that his wife is his sister. Now this is the second time we've seen this in Abraham's story. The first time we saw it was in Genesis chapter 12. After the Lord called Abram to leave his homeland and promised that he would inherit the promised land and that he would be the father of a great nation. And when a famine hit, he and Sarah then went into Egypt to get some food and supplies. And when they arrived there, he lied about Sarah being his sister. He said, she's my sister because we're told in verses 11 through 13 of that chapter He said this because she was beautiful and he was afraid that they would kill him to take her. So it was a form of self-protection. And here we're going to see that Abraham does it again. Now, I don't know, ladies, just for a thought, is this the kind of dude you want protecting you? I mean, what a guy, you know? I mean, wow. And we're told in chapter 20 of what we're the chapter we're in now that he did it for the same reason, self-protection. He thought they would kill him because they wanted to take his wife into the king's harem. And he explains even more why he did it. This little white lie. Well, she's actually my half sister. Same dad, different mom. And then we're given another bit of information that we didn't know the first time. Sarah's been in on this from the beginning. 
do me a favor to save my life everywhere we go. Just tell people that I'm your brother. Now, now before you start vomiting and throwing up in your mouth for a second, because this is his half sister, which I know what you're probably doing. You got to realize this we're early, early, early on in the Genesis story. And this was a typical practice early on. Kenneth Matthews explains just to give you a, a picture of what's going on here. Marriage within the family endogamy characterizes the practice of the patriarchs. For example, Nahor married his niece, Milka. Isaac married Rebecca, his second cousin. And Jacob married sisters Leah and Rachel, who were his cousins. The early practical effect of this is preservation of the family's religious tradition. That's very important to the story. And later on in the Mosaic legislation, you're going to notice this gets outlawed. And certain forms of this are outlawed, such as a man's marriage to his sister and marriages to sisters. And he gives a list of references there. So what you're seeing in Genesis 20 is something that was socially acceptable at the time for the preservation of the family's religious traditions. That's so just understand that's what you're seeing here. Don't let that take away from what you're noticing. Because what you're noticing is the motive behind Abraham's little white lie. He believed there were no God-fearing people in Gerar, so he took matters into his own hands to protect himself and the promise. This reveals how self-centered and short-sighted Abraham was. Now, this is incredibly encouraging to me because I am incredibly short-sighted and I am very self-focused, yet I claim to be a man of God. Now, to understand this about Abraham, we need to put it in the overarching big part of his story to just think about this, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to run through the story of Abraham briefly for us to just get a picture of what's happening in Genesis 20. Because in Genesis 12, as we already saw, God promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. In Genesis 15, God told him that this would happen because Abraham would have his own son and God would make sure of it. Genesis 16, his wife Sarah gets impatient and she suggested to to Abraham, hey, have a baby with Hagar, my Egyptian servant. In Genesis 17, God told Sarah that the promised nation would come through her giving birth to Isaac, who would be Abraham's son. In Genesis 18, the Lord promised that within the next year, this whole thing's going to come down just as God had told him to do. Okay, That's where we are. God has been telling them this is going to happen, and God's going to act upon this over and over and over and over again. And then you get to Genesis 20, and what does Abraham do with the promise of God? He lies. Abraham takes his wife, who will be the mother of the promised child, and gives her to a king's harem. Does that seem weird to you? Abraham forgot God's promises when faced with losing his life and takes matters into his own hands. And instead of choose, instead he chooses to lie and possibly lose his wife and he puts the promise of God for a son between him and Sarah at risk. Now ladies, before you give your husband the stink eye and you think, well, you weak men, what a bunch of punks you are. 
Just remember, Sarah was in on it as well. And what we have here is God's chosen people being afraid, forgetting God's promises, and forgetting how important the things that God set up in this world are, like marriage. And taking matters into their own hands, rather than waiting on and trusting in, and listen clearly, the long term and the long game that God's playing. And listen, every one of us in the room can relate. A hard election happens. We do our part. We pray. We vote. The candidate we don't want gets elected. And we forget that God raises up kings and he takes them down for his own purposes. We read the news feeds and we see the Barna studies that young people are leaving the church. And we begin to frame our ministries to make it more appealing and relative to kids. And we begin to toss the gospel out the whole time, forgetting that Jesus himself said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We see a culture moving farther and farther away from God's institution of marriage. And we think to ourselves, it must be outdated. It must be wrong because that's what the world says. So rather than getting married, let's try it out by just simply living together. And we begin to toss marriage out and forget that marriage is God's institution for the good of all societies for all time. See, before we judge Abraham's stupidity and Sarah going along with it, we need to see ourselves in this battle. It's easy to forget God's promises and how important God's institutions are to God and make culturally, make poor yet culturally accepted decisions. We do it all the time. And what's fascinating about this story is Abraham and Sarah might have forgot, but God didn't. So let's look at God's response to their forgetfulness. Look with me at God's intervention and protection. We'll see this in several verses in the text. When Abimelech took Sarah into his harem, God intervened with a warning in a dream. God told Abimelech that Sarah was Abraham's wife, and if he touched her, he's going to die. And you can see in verse 6 that that after Abimelech pleads with God on behalf of his own innocence, that God told him, hey, don't get too far ahead of yourselves, pal. I mean, listen, yeah, indeed, you've got some integrity. But listen, the reality is God says, I didn't allow you to touch her. And then Abimelech brings Sarah back to Abraham with large quantities of gifts. And you can read it, livestock, male and female servants, and gave a thousand pieces of silver in honor of Sarah's innocence. Now, each of these moments in the text, each of these are showing us something about God that we can't miss. And there's three things I want you to notice. The first one is this. We should see that when God makes a promise, it will get done. I'm going to write tomorrow about the big promise of the covenant of grace, because what you're seeing here is God has made this huge promise 
that is wrapped up in Isaac and Abraham, and God is saying nothing's going to stop that. And that's eventually going to get us to Jesus, which is eventually going to get us to the new heavens and new earth. So God is saying something big here, that when he makes a promise, it will get done. And listen, friends, we must get this into our spiritual thinking. This has got to like embed itself so deeply into your soul that you don't, that it's like a, it's one of those bedstone rocks that you keep returning to over and over again in your soul. God's plans will never fail. You must, you must, we've got, you've got to lock that in. God's plans will never fail. Abraham made, made a rash, self-focused decision, and we could say decisions, and yet it did not stop God from protecting his promise. And God did the miraculous. He spoke to Abimelech through a dream, and Sarah was protected. Sarah's morality was protected. And as we're going to study next week, Isaac's conception and birth through Abraham and Sarah was protected. And ultimately, God's promise was protected. See, don't miss the big picture. God did that. Don't miss that. In the big 100,000-foot flyover of all things, God will not be stopped. Please get that into your thinking. Have it so, make it one of those things you Think about often God's purposes will not be stopped. Human ingenuity, immorality, and evil in the world. And listen, even God's people being stupid will not stop God from fulfilling his purposes. See, I just want to ask you, do you believe that about God? Do you believe that God will fulfill everything he promised? But the second thing I want you to see is how God protected the covenant of marriage with Abraham and Sarah. Now, what I think you're going to find is this. Marriage is a big deal to God. And what you're going to notice, I'm going to write about this tomorrow. You're going to notice two institutions that God made in the world. He gave to his people, marriage and the church. And you're going to find God doesn't say that the gates of hell will not prevail against the family. He said the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And here we're seeing another institution that God says marriage matters. Something that God set up. Marriage is a big deal to God. Listen, even if it wasn't to Abraham, I mean, just think about that. Here Abraham's married to this woman and say, is willing to say, hey, take her to your harem. She's my sister. Deny that we're even married so that we can, I can be safe. Yet God made sure Abimelech did not touch her. And God made sure that she was sent back as Abraham's wife. And God even told Abimelech, hey, she's another man's wife. And he made sure she's safely delivered back and brought back to her husband. And my question to you is this, do you hold marriage as high as God does? See, God felt so strongly about Abraham and Sarah's marriage and his promise that he's going to fulfill through them that, listen, he brought a dream to a pagan king to protect it. And he made sure Sarah wasn't touched. Do you feel that strongly about marriage? 
Friends, marriage is an institution given to us by God in the Garden of Eden. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but your marriage is a remnant of the Garden of Eden. It's an artifact that you are holding with you and with you on display to reveal something to the world about paradise. And it's for the good, God gave it to us, for the good of all societies everywhere. It's not a social construct of of emotionally weak people. It's not an outdated Victorian era relic that doesn't work in the 21st century. No, it is a gift from God, protected by God, for the good of society and the world. Don't miss that. God, in this story, protected marriage. But there's a third thing I want you to see about God that is very challenging. I want you to see how God used Abraham's selfish, sinful moment to accomplish his purposes. So we can say, you're right, human sin doesn't stop God. But I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God can work with human sin to accomplish his purposes? Now, this is a very challenging thing to grasp and talk about because if we're not careful, people will say, well, I can just do whatever I want and God's going to accomplish his plans. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about moments when we make unwise decisions, sometimes sinful decisions, and God, through his grace and his mercy, says, you're an idiot and I know it. I'm going to get it done. Theologians call this, and you can look this up sometime, they call it concurrence. Concurrence is an interesting idea that It's where the sovereign God works out his divine purposes by working with, in, and through the choices that people make every day of their lives. And we see that in this story. Now think about this for a moment. If Abraham had not lied about Sarah's status as his sister, God would not have warned Abimelech in a dream, and Abimelech would not have sent Abraham away with a lot of wealth. We'll get to that more later. God's intervention had to come about to protect God's promise of Isaac's birth and the institution of marriage to give us the picture that God is going to do everything he can to make sure his promise is fulfilled, to make sure that his institutions are protected. God's intervention was necessary because Abraham was an idiot. Don't miss that. Now, who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, Moses. When did Moses write this? Most historians believe that Moses wrote this on the journey out of Egypt. He's writing this story. God delivered it to him. And as I can only imagine Moses, as he got done with Genesis 20 and even Genesis 12, sitting down with the people of God around the campfire as they're on their journey to the promised land and reading to them what he has read and hear, and them hearing and recognizing the hand of God and providing for them from a foreign king. Because in Genesis 12, when the king of Egypt sent them on their way, the king of Egypt gave them all this stuff to take with them. But yet in the book of Exodus, when they left Egypt, what did the Egyptians do? Here, take our goods and get out. It's God's way of providing for his people through a wicked king. 
They're seeing and recognizing the hand of God working things out to accomplish his purposes. Even if in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20, Abraham was an idiot. He sinned against God. He was self-protecting. He was myopic. Friends, this is how sovereign your God is. Human sin does not thwart his purposes. He works even through human sin to accomplish his grandest plans. And you may say, there's no way that can happen. I'll give you one, and you will see it very clearly. There's no greater picture of this. No greater picture of this than when Jesus Christ was crucified by the sinful judgment of the Jewish people at the hands of sinful Romans. God used human sin to accomplish his greatest glory. And if God can do that, he can work alongside the sins from your life and against your life to accomplish his greatest plans in you and through you and for you. See, God's plans will not be stopped. Our sinful stupidity will not change God's mind. Nor does it take him by surprise. God isn't somehow waiting on us to respond and then God go, okay, I better kind of catch up. It's not how your sovereign God works. He will intervene to protect his promises and his institutions. And if necessary, listen, he's going to ride over the top of what goes on in his people. Now let's look at our last point, which is Abimelech's integrity and healing. And can't you, can't you feel that last point? Can't you feel the wrestling match in your soul? You can feel it because we all feel this. It's like, okay, wait a minute. There's so much evil in the world. Is God ever gonna? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah. And a matter of fact, he might even take that and use it for glory. I, how? I don't know. He's that sovereign. He's that good. He's that holy and magnificent that he can take everything that's been done and accomplish it for his great purposes. One guy said years ago, and I'll never forget it. He said, God is weaving the bully of your third grade year into your life. And he will somehow even utilize that to when you're 78 to use that for your good. Do you believe your God is that big? You talk about comfort in this world and hope. Let's look at the last point, which is Abimelech's integrity and healing. Abimelech is a really interesting guy in this story. He does what foreign kings do, right? I mean, he takes a woman into his harem and any woman they could choose they could take. But he acts with unusual integrity and a fear of the Lord. It was normal for foreign kings to take women into their harems, and he didn't touch Sarah because God warned him before he had the chance. But it's interesting. He appeals to God on the basis of his integrity, and God agreed with him to a degree. God said, yeah, I agree. You know, but don't forget, I, I kept you from not touching her. You know, God was real quick to make sure Abimelech didn't get too far ahead of himself. And after God met him, he obeyed the Lord, returned Sarah, gave gifts to Abraham, and then even said to Abraham, would you pray for me and my family? And the results are that God healed him and his family, and he opened the wombs of 
those in his kingdom, which it seemed like that they were barren. And he was blessed by God through Abraham's prayers. So here's the question. What do we make of Abimelech? What do we do with this guy? In Abimelech, I think we see something of what we'd call common grace at work. Abimelech, Abimelech shows an awareness of God without being one of God's people. He shows the uncanny integrity without knowing the God of integrity. He's a God-fearer without having a personal relationship with the living God. And the reason for this is what we call common grace. If we're not careful, we look at Abimelech and say, look at all these traits. He must be one of the children of God. But we're going to see in a minute that God clearly separates him and Abraham. See, one part of common grace is that non-Christians will show great integrity, remarkable love and compassion, mercy. They'll have show incredible mercy. They'll give, they'll be great servants because they're made in the image of God. Common grace in people like this reveals that there's still a remnant of God's image, even in sinful people who aren't God's people. Listen, if you ever want to lead in for the gospel, be observant of God's image bearing in humans and then point out to them where they you see God's image and then ask them, do you know the God in whose image that you are reflecting? This happened to me a few years ago at the coffee shop. There was a barista there, incredibly compassionate. And I was at the counter and she'd noticed I'd been meeting with somebody and this person was crying. And as we left the meeting, I went to go pay my bill and she just said, Hey, is that, is that individual okay? I said, they're doing, they're doing fine. Why do you ask? And she said, Oh, I just saw they're crying and oh, it just, oh, it just breaks my heart. And I said to her, isn't it amazing how compassionate you are? She goes, Oh, I just ache for people. I think I should be a nurse, you know? And I said, you know what's interesting? I said, you know, God is compassionate. Do you know God? Do you know the compassion of God? She said, what do you mean? I said, God made you in his image, and he's a compassionate God, and therefore you are showing some compassion that looks like God. But yet you and I have been separated from God because we've sinned. And if, I know i got to pay my bill but whenever you're ready to hear more about how you can know this God, I'm going to sit right over here and I'll wait on you. I know you got a break in 20 minutes. She came over 20 minutes later. Tell me about this God. And I share with her what I saw in her life, image bearing. And I share with her how sin had separated us from God and gave her the story of Jesus. Offered her a chance to repent of what she did not. And she gave me the opportunity to pray for her. So I did. And she went back to work. Great lead in for the gospel. I'll write more about that tomorrow. But what we see in Abimelech is just common grace. It doesn't make him God's child. But he acted better than God's child. See, this is why you'll notice in your world, you're going to notice non-Christians who are heroic. You should applaud it. It's why you, you see atheists who hate liars. I know a very opinionated non-Christian who cannot stand cheaters. Oh, man, it gets him so mad. And I've said to them often, like, what does it matter to you, man? 
You don't even believe in the living God who is the God of all truth. Why? Because it reveals that humans are made in the image of God and there's a remnant of the image of God in them. That's why I think it's so, we gotta be so careful about the way we interact with the non-Christian world because if we're not careful, we are condemning them all the time for their sin and not saying to them, there's a lead into the gospel that reveals the image of God in them that you can get them right to the cross. See, at times you're gonna notice some people that are not Christians are nicer and sweeter and kinder than other Christians. It's to be honest with you, it's why many young ladies have come to me through the years and just said, you know, Dave, it's so frustrating. The non-Christian dudes treat me way better than Christian guys. You know why? It's common grace. And gals, if you're not careful, you'll fall prey to common grace and you'll marry a non-Christian. It doesn't save them. Or make them right with God, but it does reveal that they're made in the image of God. That's what we see in Abimelech. We're going to notice something in the text that's fascinating. God makes it very clear. Abraham and Abimelech are different. Even though Abimelech had this common grace running through him, it wasn't enough to make him one of God's people. The text shows us this. There's a difference between Abraham and Abimelech, and it isn't their integrity. You see that? Not their integrity. Notice it's God's calling and God's purpose. We see this in verse 7. This is the first time in the Bible we read about somebody being called a prophet. Abraham. And Abimelech is healed through Abraham's prayers. Both of these things reveal that God was on Abraham's side and Abraham had a unique relationship with God as God's child. Abimelech might have acted in integrity in his heart, but Abraham was God's son because he believed God. It was counted to be as one of God's own children. Now, this story tells us something very important to the Bible story that you cannot miss. Moral integrity does not save us. Good deeds do not save us. Our natural goodness, if there is such a thing, which is just image bearing of God, cannot save us. It is God's act of grace toward us that saves us. This is what God told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that he loved them because he loved them. They were his people. Because his grace towards them, not because they were good, better, or great. That's what we see here. Abimelech had remarkable integrity because he, because he was made in God's image. But Abraham was righteous before God because of God's grace toward him. And listen, if you and I were to pick out what are the guys you'd trust in this story, you might pick Abimelech. But God's ways are not our ways. And God's grace, listen to this clearly, is more extravagant and mysterious than our minds can even conceive. Abraham was a son of God because he believed God and God's grace toward him. Yes, he blew it by trying to protect himself and forgot God's promises, but he's still God's child because of God's grace and calling and purpose. I mean, what about you? I mean, are you trusting in your moral goodness to save you? Or do you see the grace of God extended to you as the reason for your salvation? 
Are you believing that your integrity will bring you eternal blessing? Or do you see your eternal, your integrity as a picture of God's grace at work in you? This is how the Apostle Paul told us in Ephesians 2. He said it very clearly. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, we aren't perfect, but we are redeemed. We don't have it all together, but we are forgiven. And by God's grace, we are what we are, and we belong to God because we've been bought with a price. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's promises will never be stopped? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will protect his promises and intervene if necessary to get them done, even if it means working through human sin like yours to get it done? Better yet, do you believe that God's grace is extravagant enough to save you and save others that you think there's no way he could save? Let's pray. This morning, the living God is talking to some of you. This morning, he's pinpointing to you that your moral excellence, your good works are not enough. This morning, you need to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. You need to trust in the grace of God. If that's you this morning, I just want to encourage you to bow your head before God. Tell him that you believe in Christ and you want to live for him. Some of you, the Lord is talking to you about your anger and your anxieties and your fears about what's going on in this world. And God is trying to help you see that there is more hope than you have ever dreamed because the living God is at work. And this morning, you might need to repent of the way that you have treated other people, the way you have You have responded to your world. If that's you, just take a moment before your God and confess your sin. Maybe you have not valued the importance of the institutions that God has set up, namely marriage and the church. This morning, God is calling you to change to see the importance of your marriage and to give time and energy to investment. And the same in the church. That's you this morning. That's you this morning. Take a moment before God.
and repent. Maybe like us, there's somebody in your life that you you need the grace of God to go to work and to save them. Name them by name before the Lord and ask him to open their eyes, see the glory of Christ. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for talking to us. I'm reminded that the preaching moment is just a grace from you, that you you talk to us, you, you re-speak your word to us, and, and your spirit convicts us and reveals truth to us and gives us hope and helps us see Jesus. So we want to do business with you this morning. We we trust you that you're at work. God, we just want to declare that you, your steadfast love never ceases. You are faithful to every promise you've ever given. Your word is true, forever settled in heaven. There is no debate in the heavenly realm if you are true and faithful and if your word is. Now you... We just say, as your people, you, you will accomplish all that you have planned, and we, we, your people, want to trust you. Church, just tell them that. I just want to trust you. Lord, we trust you with this upcoming election. We trust you with the chaos we see in our world. Help us to respond as people of God, not as people of the world. We trust you with our finances. We trust you with our health. We ask you to bring our non-Christian friends to Jesus. They'd open their eyes to see the glory of Christ. Lord, we've delivered the news, but you, you've got to convince the heart. We ask you to do so power of your spirit. We thank you that you are the God of all hope because you are the faithful God who never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you that in Even though we will make unwise decisions and we will sin, that the God of heaven is at work. Thank you that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.